A few years ago, uh, five or six years ago now, a friend of mine, uh, his name's Nate, he had knee surgery and he'd been on recovery for like eight or nine months. And um, his doctor was finally giving him the release. He's a, a very uh, good athlete, cyclist, and all kinds of things. And so his, um, his like way to celebrate being released the day of like being released to exercise by his doctor, get back on a bike was to ride from here all the way to Moab. (laughs) And so he, he invited me to ride along with him and a group of other people. And, uh, I hadn't been, I used to be a pretty good cyclist in high school, but I hadn't been on a bike like for anything serious in years. Right. And so uh, I'm like, Nate, there's no way I can do this, but tell you what, I'll, I'll, jump in and I'll drive the van at least and then like I'll get half or three quarters of the way there and we can swap out and I'll and I'll uh, ride a bike the rest of the way and so that's what we did and it was actually pretty fun we drove down I drove the van all the way down to Dewey Bridge which is um, you know the pretty way down to Moab and um, and then I jumped on the bike and when I got on that bike I felt great I was keeping up with, uh, you know, with my friend Nate. We're just cruising along, you know, along the river. And I'm like, I can do this. This is easy. I remember how to do this, right? And I have my other friends, and we're, we're keeping up. And then we hit the first hill. <laughs> and I dropped along on the side of the road. And they, like, took off, and they were gone. And there was no way I was catching up to them as hard as I tried. And so I'm just dying over here. And we keep riding. And if you've driven that section, you don't realize how many hills there are until you ride on a bike. Uh, so anyway, um, we're, we're driving up and down, or I'm riding, and we get to this big line of cars because there's road construction. And they're just way on ahead of me, and I can't catch up. And so... Um, I pull up next to this van pulling a flatbed trailer. It's a rafting company. And I knock on the guy's window. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, can, I, can you help me out? Help a brother out. And so I throw my bike on his trailer. And we cr- and he pulls me up. And I have him drop me off like just down the road around the bend so my friends can't see me. And then I come riding up like nothing's happened, right? And if you've been here for like five or six years, you've heard that story one other time. And my friend Nate was sitting right over here, and he's like, what? And it was really funny, Um, because he didn't know. (laughs) But the point was, I needed help. I needed a cheater solution, didn't I? I needed some way to catch up, because I just didn't have it in me. And the account we're going to look at today in the book of John is, is an account of a guy who found himself in just a hopeless and desperate situation. And un- unlike me, he didn't have a cheater, clever workaround. He was in, a, in really a hopeless, desperate situation with no hope of getting out of his situation. He found himself in the place where he'd given up hope long ago, but he was still kind of going through the motions, but didn't really expect anything to change. And maybe some of you are like that here today in an area of your life. Maybe it's in a relationship that you're just going through the motions, but you don't expect anything to change, or maybe a circumstance, a really tough circumstance, and you've tried, and you've tried, maybe a habit, you've tried, and you've tried, and you've, and, you know, you just go through the motions. Maybe that's kind of in your relationship with God. 
and you're here, you're here, but somewhere along the way, you really quit hoping that God was going to show up in your situation. You really quit hoping that you were going to um, really experience the presence or the power of God in your life. And so it's January and you're back or you're here, but going into this new year, there's not a lot of hope in your heart. And if you find yourself in any one of those places, I think maybe this guy's story here today will speak to you. So if you have your Bibles, you can start turning over to John chapter 5. And if you're new around here, we uh, typically preach through whole books of the Bible. We've been in the book of John for quite a while, most of the fall. And if you've missed it, you can go binge catch up on the whole series if you want. We started it last April in John 1. Then we took a big long break over the summer. And then we dove in and we've done chapters 2 through uh, 4 over the fall. And now we're launching into chapter 5. And it's a completely new section. And so scholars divide the book of John. And this is a new section. We're going to be looking at some of the, the big festivals and feasts in Judaism, which is kind of this next section. But Um, What we're going to see is the heart of God compared to sort of dead religion that they had established in uh, in the first century. And so that's what Jesus is going to do. That's one of the things that Jesus is going to highlight. And to do this, uh, we're going to hear all these incredible accounts and uh, stories from Jesus' ministry here on earth. And this is one of them. And you know what we're going to talk about today, um, honestly, really isn't the main point of the text. It, this guy's story is is there to illustrate a bigger theme, but we're not going to get to that till next week. So you got to come back next week. Um, but I just want to, instead of just like this guy being a footnote in in the the theme, I want to stop and really look at his story and how his story might relate to us here today. And so John five starts out like this: It says, "Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish." Festivals. Now, three times every year, um, Jewish males were actually required. If you live within 15 miles and if you were observant, you'd come from even further away and you would come up to Jerusalem for the feast. You had Passover, uh, perhaps the biggest one, and, and the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost. And during these times in the city of Jerusalem, the population would explode, the city would be packed, and they would head into Jerusalem. And so this is one of those times. And it says this in in verse 2. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now normally, like, details like that, we just sort of glaze over, right? Skim through quick. But I want to pause there for just a minute. Because this is a, a cool little verse, and here's, here's the reason. If you're here and you're a skeptic, maybe you're just checking out God, church, and the Bible, but you're a skeptic, you took a class at one point, um, you heard a bunch of things that supposedly um, told you, the professor told you you can't trust the Bible as being historical because of this or because of this. Let me just say, this verse right here, this, this sheep gate with the five col- covered colonies, um, for a couple hundred years after the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment was in the 17th and 18th centuries, Um, There were all sorts of critical lectures at Ivy League schools about why you can't trust the Bible. And this verse here was used as one of the reasons why. Because they said, we've dug in Jerusalem and we haven't found this place. John is just making things up. He's just making up locations. 
This place didn't exist. And actually, there have been people who walked away from their faith in part because of um, that kind of understanding and those kinds of critical um, lectures and uh, speculations about the Bible based on verses like this, right? But then in the mid-1900s, some archaeologists dug a little bit deeper because that's what you do. You know, in ancient cities, there's like, they're called tells, and you've got this layer, which is from this period and this layer, and they dig a little bit deeper in the city of Jerusalem near the Temple Mount, and lo and behold, they discovered something pretty cool. In fact, Craig Bloomberg, who writes a several hundred-page book about the historicity of the Gospel of John, says this. If you travel to Jerusalem today, you'll go to the Pool of Bethsaida, and you will see it was a long, thick, rectangular-shaped structure, and then a dividing section down the middle. Those are the five porticos. In other words, as they dug deeper, and this is kind of the ruins surrounding this area, they discovered exactly, with inscriptions like the whole deal, they discovered exactly what John describes. And they're like, oh, I guess this place actually does exist. And the point of this is actually the Gospel of John is very historical. There's all sorts of details and it's written, um, one scholar concludes at the end of studying John is like, well, either like this is a guy that's really good at inserting specific details or this is an eyewitness account, right? And as, as we study it more, it becomes clear this is an eyewitness account of the ministry of Jesus. And here, here's like the point behind this is those who walk away because of arguments like this, um, they're actually working off of outdated information. And so if you've heard kind of this thing, it's, it's outdated information. In fact, Luke, uh, we preached through the Gospel of Luke just a few years ago, and almost every chapter, Luke roots his account of Jesus' life in historical places and historical facts and people, right? And so that's why you've heard about the governor Quirinius of, of uh, Syria. Why? Because he's in the Christmas story. Caesar Augustus, you hear his name every year, not because he was the first Roman Empire. You heard that in high school, right? Uh, but you hear it every year because he's a footnote in the story of Jesus. In fact, the author of Luke and Acts, he tells us about nine different islands, 54 cities, 32 countries with no geographical error. Uh, the, these guys, they carefully research, right? Um, uh, there's a renowned archaeologist. His name is Dr. Nelson Gluek. And he actually was responsible for discovering 1,500 ancient archaeological sites. Here's what he wrote. He says this, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible, and then he goes on to say, like, in fact, as you study the Bible and then go dig where you think you're going to find things, it results in finding all sorts of things that actually are there. And see, as you really start to study this, um, archaeology supports in a very strong way the historicity of the Bible. And the history of John is very historical as well. In fact, John is the reason why we know that Jesus' ministry was three years long because he records for us that he went to the Passover three times. So it's John that's the reason we know that. 
And so some of you may be listening to some arguments that the Bible can't be trusted. And some, um, what you got to realize is, is that is based on outdated information. The more they continue to dig, the more, the deeper they go, the more they discover, oh, this is actually true. This is actually here. And see, this is, this is important. I know this is a bunny trail. I'll get off the bunny trail here in a second. <laughs> this is important because our faith is not based on some vague philosophical or moral texts or, or, or just the good teachings of a teacher. It's based on historical events, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you can verify in history as you begin to, to study. In fact, there are um, multiple scholars who set out to disprove Christianity, and as they studied the resurrection of Jesus, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, instead they concluded, this is true, and they gave their lives to Jesus. And so let me say, if you run into questions or arguments or things you don't have the answer to, please reach out to me personally. Email me. We'd love to help you find there. Because the, the, the truth is there's great answers. And maybe there are a few questions. There are some questions. We haven't discovered the things yet. And let me just say that based on, um, based on the track record, I would just say give it a little longer. Let them dig a little more, right? Because as they do that, it just confirms over and over and over again that you can trust the scriptures. You can trust that this really happened. Don't walk away. We want to help you get those questions answered. All right, moving on. Um, Verse 3 says this. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, let me just say is, so here's what's happening um, in this text. And uh, in some of the later copies of the original manuscripts of the scriptures, the scribes actually inserted a a little explanation for what's going on here. And that uh, explanation is basically the, the rumor, the superstition at the time, is that an angel would come down and stir this pool. Now, we think this pool was fed by kind of an aqueduct or something, and it would bubble from time to time. And so the rumor, the superstition, is that an angel would come down, and they'd stir this pool, and then it became known as a place of healing. And whoever got down into this pool first would be healed. And so you have all these people that are hanging out here, both because it gives them shade and shelter, these covered five covered porches around the pool. Um, it gives them shelter, but then also because they're hoping if, if the water stirs, they can be in the first in the water and they can experience a healing. And can you imagine um, being paralyzed in, in the first century? I mean, you think it's hard now. Here's actually where we meet our guy. It says this in verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. And as difficult as, as it is to be a paraplegic or be paralyzed today, is difficult. Um, think of how hard it would have been in the first century, Right? I, we have this friend, um, he, he was paralyzed in a car accident at 17. He's a family friend, my parents' friend. And this guy was amazing. He's this, like, tough um, game warden kind of uh, BLM guy up in uh, Wyoming and had this big old truck, and he'd, like, pull himself up and had this cool, like, thing rigged up. This guy would go out in his wheelchair, cut firewood with a chainsaw, <laughs> hunt elk, 
I mean, he didn't, he didn't let anything stop him, right? He was very, it was such an inspiration, right? But can you imagine in the first century, you would be completely, this guy for 38 years had been paralyzed. Quite likely, he, he might not have had control of his bodily functions. This was what some scholars point out in this, in this day and age. You're completely reliant on others. And they would just, you know, somebody would carry him to this place, and there he would lay. Your only income, your only support, it comes from begging or, or the charity of your family members. His hands would have been completely um, raw from dragging himself around. I think at some point this guy lost hope, 38 years. Can you imagine? And yet he's still there. But I think there's something in his heart that has given up. I think there's something in his heart that lost hope. 38 years in this condition. And it says in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, (laughs) this question almost seems like an insult, doesn't it? Like, dumb question. But I think as Jesus so often does, there's something deeper behind the surface. Because I think there's something in this guy's heart that actually um, has probably gotten used to the situation he's in. And of course he wants to get well. But I think Jesus is is asking a little deeper questions. Like, this man, um, at this point, and this is my speculation, but anybody watch The Chosen? I went and, uh, you can look it up on YouTube, I went and uh, looked up the scene uh, from this healing at the pool of Bethsaida um, on, on The Chosen just to remember it. And it's so, so powerful, the way they present it. Because you see this guy, like when the water stirs, just struggling and trying to get down, but he can't do it. But here's what I think, actually. I think this guy kind of quit trying a while ago. Like, it goes off. He tried real hard for the first six months. But it's been years since he really had any hope in his heart. And when that water stirs, he looks up, and he doesn't even try anymore. It's just my, my speculation. And Jesus asked him this thing, like, do you want to get well? He's so tired. He's so hopeless. He's there but there's no expectation in his heart. He's not expecting God to show up in that place that day and do anything for him. In fact, verse 7 says this, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, there's two things going on here that I think are significant. Number one, I think his his assessment is accurate. And, and here's what I noticed from that, that just because you go through something difficult doesn't necessarily mean you will have empathy or compassion on someone else. Do you notice that? Because there's all these other people who could help him down. They're not worried about him, are they? Who are they worried about? Themselves. That's the nature of humanity. The nature of humanity, apart from the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, apart from that spark of the image of God within us, is to only look out for number one. 
And these guys in the situation um, that they're in, they all, when that water goes off, they just try to be the first one in there. And so I think even though he has an accurate assessment, here's the other thing you see him going to, is blame, right? It's somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. And I'm willing to bet that whatever the situation you find yourself in today, your natural tendency is to go towards rationalizing the place you're in because it's someone else's fault. And you know what? You might be right on some of those counts, right? But I think as Jesus asked him, do you want to be well? There's something deeper Jesus is probing at here. Is where's your heart? Is there any expectation that God can show up and move in this situation? Where's your heart at? Do you even want it? Is there the desire to change? Because here's, here's what I know from life, from talking to people, from experiences I've had. There's times where you know the right thing to do, but you just don't have the inner will to do it, right? You know how to get there. You know the thing you should do, and yet you ask yourself, well, why don't I do it? And the thing you have to ask yourself is if you really say you want to go deeper with God, if you want to experience transformation in your life, why aren't you willing to do the things that need to be done in your life in order to cooperate with the work that God wants to do in your heart and your life? I mean, there's a reason why, as a culture, we get to the beginning of the year and we decide to do new things and, you know, online 90% give up after three weeks, right? Why is that? Do you want to get well? And so at some point, you have to actually recognize. Now, this guy, what we're going to learn in a, in a minute is it's possible that this um, condition was actually a result of some kind of behavior or lifestyle. Now, we don't know that, but scholars speculate this based on this and the paralytic that we see in Mark, the same. The Greek has a connotation, and because Jesus will say something um, about sin in their life, we think maybe this had something to do. We don't know that. But regardless of that, I think a good question to ask, as Jesus asked, do you want to get well, is have you considered the fact that the problem may be you. The problem may be me. And yeah, I've got these circumstances and these people in my life that make it hard, but ultimately, maybe the problem is right here. Maybe the problem is inside. I heard this really cool story. Uh, one of our, uh, Winston was uh, having a meeting and, and um, he's mentoring one of our other young staff members and he's reading this book, uh, Leadership and Self-Deception. And this story really struck him and, and uh, stuck out to this young, uh, young staff member, this leader, as he was reading this book. It was about a Hungarian doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis. And yeah, say that five times quickly, right? <laughs> and Ignaz Semmelweis, Dr. Ign yeah, I won't say it. Um, Dr. S, yes, Dr. S, okay. Uh, he was the one who discovered, actually, and got the medical community to begin washing their hands. Now, in my house, ever since my kids were little, I think they're going to be neurotic because when they grow up, they hear me say, wash your hands, right? I said it to my, my almost teenager this morning. Wash your hands, right? Um, I might be a little germaphobic. I don't know. I probably have help. I probably need some counseling. Um, 
But anyway, this doctor, what he discovered is a really interesting story because the doctors would deliver babies and then the midwives would deliver babies. And what he began to observe uh, as he looked at the data was that lots more women were dying after childbirth uh, when the doctors did the delivery. And it's like, that's strange. I wonder what it is. And so he started experimenting and they had these priests that would come through the hospital and like do some holy water and incantation kind of thing after someone had died. Um, and so, or given birth. And he said, well, let's stop that and see if it makes a difference. And that didn't do anything. And, and he just kept trying different things. And, and he got really frustrated because he couldn't figure out what the problem was. And so he goes on vacation. And as he's doing that, one of the other doctors, um, stays there and takes kind of over his job and actually pricks his finger while doing an autopsy and gets the same fever following that the women would get following labor and delivery and dies. And Samuel is like, whoa, that's a big clue. And, and what he did in that moment was he recognized, um, he, he put two and two together and recognized maybe I'm the problem because the doctors would do autopsies on, on patients and then they'd go right in and deliver babies without washing their hands. And so he was the one that actually, um, he was the one that said, hey, I want all our staff, medical staff, to start washing your hands before child d delivery uh, with a chlorine solution. And the, the death rate, you know, the post-mortem death rate went, or uh, yeah, that would, never mind. Wrong language. The death rate following delivery would go way, way down. Now, ironically, ironically, like he ended up ending his life in a sane asylum, being persecuted because the medical authorities um, would not believe that this could actually be that, you know, they were stuck in a narrative and wouldn't look at the data. Um, and I'll just leave that right there and <laughs> move on. <laughs> but the point behind all this, and get myself in trouble. The point behind this is sometimes you got to look at, at yourself and ask the question, maybe I'm the problem. Like maybe the problem is within me. And I've been blaming everybody else. And it's always somebody else's fault. But maybe when I'm really honest, like the thing I'm facing, the situation, maybe I had something to do with that. And it's only when you are able to get that honest that you can begin to make progress in some areas in your life. When you recognize, hey, maybe the problem is right here. And then you got to ask the question that Jesus asked, do you want to get well? Or are you content? Are you content being stuck in the thing you're stuck in? Are you content just coming to church but not really diving in and pursuing your relationship with God? Are you content not seeing transformation in your relationships and in your lifestyle? Do you want to? Do you want to? And see, this is the question that this man had to answer in this moment. Because what Jesus, I think the deeper thing Jesus is asking him is, hey, I'm going to heal you, but it's going to require something different of you. Because you've gotten used to this life, as awful as this life is, You've gotten used to it, and you don't have a lot of responsibility, and you don't have to take initiative. You just kind of lay here. But your life is about to be transformed, and it's going to require a whole new set of things from you. Do you want it? Do you want it? And he immediately, you can tell, he goes to blame. It's not, 
And I think Jesus is, is getting to this deeper question with him. And then Jesus looks at him because he wants it. I think they had a little bit longer conversation, but this is what's recorded for us. Verse 8, it says, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Healed instantly in the moment. And yet he had a responsibility, didn't he? He had to respond. He had to what? Get up, pick up his mat, and walk. And there's a couple things that just strike me about this. The first one is, this dude didn't have any faith. In fact, when you go a little ways down the story, what we're going to discover is he doesn't have a clue who Jesus is. Because the leaders ask him, who healed you? Because this is going to be a big deal because he healed on the Sabbath. And that's what we're going to get to next week, which is a bigger conversation behind all this, right? It's going to be a big deal. And they're going to ask him, who did this? He's like, I don't know. This dude healed me. He told me. I mean, it's not, don't blame me. I'm just doing what the dude that healed me told me. And you would too, right? But he didn't have faith. And see, this is a trap that I see people fall into that are followers of Jesus. Is so many times we view or see faith as this thing, if we can just work it up enough and get enough of it, God will somehow be twisted or manipulated into doing exactly what we want. And what you see throughout the scripture, and this is the hard part, is that faith is praised. Jesus often says, you have little faith. You need to have more faith, right? And God responds to faith. This is true. But that doesn't mean you can manipulate God to do anything you want. And what you see Jesus here is Jesus says, hey, do, do you, he, he said, he just heals him, right? Just speaks a word. It's cool because the chapter before a lot of what John's doing throughout this gospel is establishing the identity of Jesus, the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, second person in the Trinity. He's establishing that. And again, um, chapter 4, he tells the, the leader, go home, your son's been healed, just speaks a word. The guy believes him, goes home, his son's healed. This one, he just speaks a word, the guy's healed. Doesn't even know who Jesus is, right? I love that. In fact, one of the other stories where Jesus heals a paralytic is in Mark. And it's amazing because his friends, it, the guy himself doesn't have any faith that we can see. Um, <laughs> but his friends do. And they dig a hole through the roof just to drop this guy down on a stretcher in front of Jesus. And Jesus just, I think, grins. And, and then he says this weird thing to him, your sins are forgiven. Which isn't what the guy was hoping for, Right? But again, Jesus is going for something deeper. See, see, the guy didn't have any faith, and yet he didn't even know who Jesus was. And yet, Jesus heals him on the spot. And this is one of the things that makes following Jesus tricky sometimes, isn't it? Because we like to put things into formulas, and we like to be able to think, if I can just pray the right prayer in the right sequence, and with enough faith... It's going to happen, and it doesn't always work that way. In fact, almost every time Jesus does a, a miracle or a healing in Scripture, let me just say, if you, if you have a hard time like buying the fact that Jesus did this, even historians like Tacitus, who were um, anti-Christian, I mean, they were writing to accuse the Christians. 
there were a number of historians that all acknowledged that Jesus did mighty miracles. Like this was just an acknowledged fact. Even the ones that hated him. Same thing like with some of the Jewish leaders that would go on to kill him, right? But Jesus, as, he's, as he works these, these miracles, um, you see him, every time he does it a little differently. There's not a formula. And this is part of the hard part is that the other thing that strikes me is, do you notice that it said this whole area was full of people who were lame and paralyzed and, and had infirmities and were sick, right? And what does Jesus do? He walks by them and to this guy, which is both like really super encouraging because Jesus knows your name. And he, and he picked this guy out of this crowd as, as he found out that he'd been there so long. At the same time, it brings up a hard part, and this is one of the hard things about faith, is that um, there's a lot of other people there that, that, unless, you know, John's not telling us, but we assume in this instant that didn't get healed that day, right? That were still laying there. And this is the hard reality of life, but it's the truth is we don't understand why, God, sometimes we pray and you work in a mighty way. And sometimes we pray and it doesn't happen. And, and that's called an infinite God interacting as finite humanity with an infinite God. In fact, it's really interesting because uh, in uh, Acts, I want to say three, uh, there's this really cool story of Peter and John. And they go to the temple, and there's, again, a, a, a man there who's lame, who's been there a beggar for years and years and years, right? And they, he begs for, 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 uh, for money, and Peter looks down and says the famous lines that you might remember from, from a uh, VBS song, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give by thee, right? In the name of Jesus Christ, Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. Um, anybody remember that song, or is it just me? Okay, a few of you. We need to bring some of those oldies back. They're good. Winston, can you get on that? We'll get you all doing the motions. <laughs> so, but the point of that is that G this guy had been at the temple gate for years, which means Jesus walked by him numerous times. And in the plan of God, then later, Peter and John were the ones who got to experience the mighty, powerful work of God in that situation. Isn't that interesting? All that means that we are finite human beings following an infinite God, and so we do that with humility. We present our requests to, the, to our gracious Heavenly Father who loves us and cares about us and knows the number of hairs we have on our head. And, um, man, there's sometimes we get to watch him move in miraculous power and go, wow! Other times we wonder, God, when or if are you going to move, right? It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We know, we trust that God can do this, but even if he doesn't, we're going to love him, we're going to serve him. That's a position of humility and faith, and I think that's something worth drawing out. And verse 14, I'm going to skip forward to 14, and we're going to catch up on the other verses next week as it sets the context for that conversation. Verse 14 says this, Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. 
And see, there's this indication that Jesus knows the circumstances involved in this people's life. We know that, right? All the time, Jesus knows things. And the same thing's true in Mark, this other situation where they drop that guy through the roof, right? And, and the scholars, as they look at the connotation in the Greek, there's the idea that this thing may have been caused by some sort of life decision, some sort of sin um, that resulted in this condition. Now, we don't know exactly what that is, or, and that is speculation, but we all know people who are suffering from, from hard circumstances in life, and it's based on awful decisions, right? We probably all have members in our families, friends. See, when it says in, in Romans that the wages of sin is death, it, it means that sin leads to destruction in life, right? As well, both eternally, but also temporally, also now. And we see that, we experience that with people. And Jesus looks down and he says, yes, you have, you got your healing. You physically, your body works again. But there's a deeper issue here. Where's your soul? There's an eternity. And, and Jesus wants to bring transformation to his life because it doesn't stop when he experiences physical healing, right? There's a deeper healing. You, you want to hear something? Everybody gets healed. The follower of Jesus, everybody. It's just which side of this life, right? And, and guess what? Everybody who gets healed in this life, should the Lord not, you know, should the Lord tarry, um, gets to die still. It's the reality of life. But the question is, hey, uh, there's a deeper transformation. There's a deeper reality. There's something eternal and significant that he wants to do. And it's possible to experience God's power in a profound way and still not be changed or transformed. question is, are you willing to do anything different to experience transformation? See, Jesus, John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And as Jesus looks at this guy, he says, hey, you're healed. Grace, boom, you didn't do anything. You had given up hope. And here Jesus shows up in his life and does the miracle. Truth. Now stop sinning. There's a deeper thing here. And you need to deal with that. Because it's a thing that's been leading you towards destruction. It's a thing that is leading you toward, it's not going to bring you to good places in life, right? That without the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus over that area, without experiencing his transformation, his salvation, um, there's an eternity of condemnation. That's the reality, and Jesus goes there. See, there needs to be transformation that follows the free gift Jesus gave you. Otherwise, you're completely missing the point. Here's kind of how I want to land this. First is, I, this is just such a beautiful picture, this, this whole story of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's grace. This guy didn't do anything. He didn't work up the faith. He didn't do anything amazing. Jesus just picks him, finds him, and moves in his direction. And that is the heart 
of our God. Grace, the free gift. That's the gospel. It's a free gift. He loved you first. He loved me first. Before we did anything for him, he loved us first. He moved towards us first. He gave us a gift first before he asked anything of us. It's at the heart of the gospel. He moves first. There's two big theological words. You gotta, you gotta wrestle and know the meaning of them. One of them is justification. And this means that when somebody trusts in Jesus Christ and puts their faith and trust, it's, it's an act that God does. He pronounces a sinner to be righteous or in right standing before God because of that sinner's faith in Jesus Christ. This happens in the moment of faith as you trust him and you're put into right relationship with him. In fact, there's a theologian named George Ladd. He said this, um, the root idea in justification is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, that the man who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is viewed as being righteous because in Christ he has come into a righteous relationship with God. You've been made right. Your sin, the penalty for your sin has been paid. Jesus took it on himself. You've been restored to favor with God, or you can be. That had been lost due to sin. You've been accepted. You can be called the friend of God. You can now be considered righteous. God sees you. He sees you through the blood of Jesus. Justification. The other one is sanctification. And it's very important to understand that sanctification means you are set apart for God. In fact, the root word behind sanctification is saint. And in the scriptures, Peter, the apostle Peter, calls you all saints. So I would like you to turn to your neighbor right now and say, hello, saint. Do it, please. It feels weird, doesn't it? But it's true. And here's the idea is you've been set apart You've been set apart, that your life was over here living for yourself, but now through faith in Jesus, you've been set apart. You are his now, and you live your life for him. So the question is, are you? See, because sanctification means you are set apart, but sanctification is something you can resist in your life. It's also a process. It's, it's a process that happens. Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow. Jesus says, praise for you and for me. and says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Like, this is a process. And see, here's the truth. And in our lives, we love the dramatic power things that God does. I love that. When God shows up and blows your mind and amazing miracles happen. And, but you know what? It's so, I think, more frequent that the transformation comes through the process of discipleship in our lives, through the process of sanctification. Meaning that you're going to probably, there's things in your life you're going to have to work hard to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to overcome. It's not going to be easy. Some days it's going to be a battle. You're going to have to make the choice to say no to yourself and yes to Jesus. You're going to have to get up and make that choice on a daily basis. As the Holy Spirit gives you the power to live for Jesus, you're going to have to cooperate with him. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. You have to cooperate. 
You have to stay in step with him. So let me just ask as we close. Have you been justified? Have you truly put your faith and trust in Jesus? And what he did, not in, you know, the fact that you're here at church or it's the beginning of the year and we're going to get it started right spiritually. That's great. I'm glad you're here. But what I would love is for you to shift from that understanding in your heart to the point of realizing it's a free gift that he did for you and to embrace that and to actually move into relationship with him because you can't get there on your own. And the second question really is, what area of your life are you resisting the Holy Spirit? See, most of you are believers. You follow God, many of you, longer than me. And yet there may be an area in your life where you just, you keep pushing back. You keep stiff-forming God. That's the area he wants to work in. And for some of you, you're just, it's been so long, or this circumstance has been so hard that you've just given up hope. And as we close here today, I just want to pray over you. And so, Lord, I just come before you, and I pray over my friends here. Lord, I ask that you would move in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give hope to that person that that has given up hope, that you would um, really light up their eyes, that, Jesus, you would encounter them in a real way here today. That person that is, is just kind of here going through the motions, that you would give them an expectation that you can and you want to move in their lives. Or for that person that needs to embrace your justifying work for the first time, would they do that here today? Place their faith and trust in you. As the son of God who died and rose again for them personally to embrace you and trust in you. And Lord, for... Um, For those that have been resisting you in an area of their life, I pray that you would move in that area. That you would give them the strength and and that the question, do you want to get well, that the answer would be yes. I want it enough to actually do something about it. To cooperate with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.